Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Daniel chapter 11. Now, I think I mentioned when we started the series that some liberal scholars dismiss the book of Daniel because its prophecies concerning the Persian and Greek empires are so detailed and so accurate that they conclude that they must have been written sometime after the fact, which of course is wonderfully ironic because many of those same scholars dismissed Daniel because of what they considered to be an unhistorical reference to King Belshazzar in chapter 5. So chapter 5 wasn't accurate enough for them, and chapter 11 was too accurate for them. This is a, a classic case of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And of course, once they finally discovered that actually chapter 5 was accurate and that King Belshazzar did in fact exist, doesn't appear that anybody noted the irony. This simply reminds us that if you don't believe in God, then you will read the Bible very differently than if you do. We bring our beliefs to the text. And if you don't believe in God, then you're going to read this story as history masquerading as prophecy. Just like if you don't believe in God, then you're going to disregard the resurrection of Christ. You're going to understand that simply as a case of mass hysteria. You're going to discount all the healings and miracles in the Bible as a case of wishful thinking and exaggerated recollection. But if you believe in God, then believing in miracles and healings and prophecies is really not that big of a deal. Why wouldn't God heal? Why, Why couldn't he raise the dead? Why couldn't he predict the future? Isn't that what God does? Isn't that what any God would do if he actually existed? So let me just put my cards on the table here. I believe that God is there and that he speaks, and therefore I take this chapter at face value. The God of the universe encouraged his people by reminding them that he was large and in charge. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. And I will read and by God's grace explain as best I can this chapter in accordance with that conviction. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now again, this goes back to chapter 10. I mentioned that the chapter divisions here are very unfortunate. Uh, The heavenly being is saying that he stood along with Michael in his spiritual battle with the prince of Persia, and he did this in the year 539 BC. We jump back into the text at verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, because this chapter is so long and so detailed, I won't be able to comment on all the details. 
Uh, if you're interested in this period of history, read Josephus, read First and Second Maccabees. I will only be able to give you just a few of the more significant details, and even then we're going to blow through our time limit today. Basically, what we're dealing with here is a zoomed-in telling of the second and third beasts from the vision of Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7. What we're getting here is extended information. This is like the director's cut, if you will, concerning Persia and Greece. Now, the fourth significant ruler who's mentioned here, who is far richer than the others, is generally identified as Xerxes, who ruled from 486 BC to 465 BC. He is called Ahasuerus in the Bible and is the king that you meet in the book of Esther. He is the famous Persian king who invaded Greece and who marched his hordes against the much smaller army of Leonidas at the Battle of Thermopylae. Although he technically won the Battle of Thermopylae, it came at a great cost to him, and after several other strategic blunders, Xerxes returned to Persia, where he died in 465 BC. The text goes on to say, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, this is Alexander the Great, the first king of the Greek empire. He broke out from the West and brought the entire known world all the way to India under his control and dominion. As the story goes, at the age of 33, he sat down and wept because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. And he died, and his kingdom was divided between his four generals. That is what the text says in verse 4. And as soon as he had arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. And, and of course, that's what happened. Alexander had uh, two sons. He had a brother, but it didn't go. His kingdom didn't go to his posterity. It was divided up between his Generals. Now, the next several verses describe the conflict between two of those four kingdoms. Alexander's kingdom was divided into four pieces, but only two are in focus here. The Seleucids to the north of Israel and the Ptolemies to the south, headquartered in Egypt. These two powers, these two kingdoms, warred against each other very often right in the land of Israel. Israel at that time was kind of like Poland in the 20th century. It lay between two great powers, and it was kind of passed back and forth and trampled on as these two great powers vied with each other in the region. And so the vision is saying, this is going to be the future of the beautiful land for the next couple of centuries. They're going to be trampled underfoot. Now, I won't break in again until the vision zooms in at verse 21. It zooms in a second time on this particular king who is a foreshadowing of the great and final Antichrist, uh, who is, sort of establishes the pattern of that political figure who harasses and oppresses the people of God. But until we get there, there's just going to be more history of this back and forth war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So we pick that up in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they'll make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants 
he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the south, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for they shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. Now here we zoom in again. This refers to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Now by rights he should not have been king. He was not in the line of succession. That's what's uh, saying there about verses in 20 to, to 21 there. Uh, he, he had a, a an older brother who was king, and he had a nephew who should have been king, but through deception and through weird goings on, the brother died, and then it seems perhaps that Antiochus Epiphanes had his nephew murdered. So by rights, he should not have been king, but by guile and intrigue, he seizes the throne. And we zoom in even further Because as I mentioned back in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes here serves as a template of the coming Antichrist. He's sometimes even called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. So we're going to have an extended telling of his part in the story because he establishes the pattern of a human political character who serves as a surrogate for our demonic adversary and who opposes and persecutes the people of God. All right? That's where we are now. We're going to zoom in at verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. 
even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their heart shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant." And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, these last couple of verses refer to the intervention of Rome, a new power at the time, the fourth beast that was on the rise. Rome literally drew a line in the sand and told Antiochus Epiphanes that he had to withdraw from Egypt or Rome would enter the war on the side of the Ptolemies. So Antiochus withdrew back towards Syria through Palestine. And as he did, he massacred massacred huge numbers of Jewish people because they had attempted to rebel against him while he was fighting down in Egypt. So frustrated in his attempts at world conquest, Antiochus began to work out his rage against the people of God. He outlawed reading or even possessing copies of the Torah. And he brought the worship of the temple to a halt. And he even sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple and set up a holy object, likely a meteor, as a monument to Zeus, an act of sacrilege called the abomination of desolation by the Jews. Verse 32 goes on to say, He shall seduce with flattery, those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, these verses appear to describe the two camps within Judaism during the upheaval of Antiochus Epiphanes. Some were colluding with Antiochus and supporting the program of Hellenization, adopting Greek customs, doing Olympic athletics in the nude, adopting the Greek diet, all these things. Others opposed this effort violently. 
And you can read all about that in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, verses 36 to 45, which we're just about to read, represent the most debated verses in this chapter, among the most debated verses in the whole Bible. And the key issue is this. Who is in focus in these verses? Do these verses refer to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the historical character? If so, we have a problem because the details don't align with what we know about the last days of his reign. Now, liberal scholars seize upon this, and they say that this proves that the book was actually written, the whole book of Daniel was actually written at this time, and that everything up to this point has been history, meaning the author was looking back on historical events, history masquerading as prophecy. And now the author does begin to prophesy, and he gets the details wrong. Now, others say that at this point, the focus shifts away from the pattern of Antiochus towards the fulfillment in the future Antichrist. And that could be because there's two indicators there. Right at the end, it says, for it still awaits the appointed time, right at the end of verse 35. And then in the next verses, it talks about the time of the end. So it could be that we're moving forward in the historical timeline. That's a legitimate option as well, given that most scholars agree that the reason the vision zooms in on Antiochus Epiphanes in the first place is to establish a general pattern for Antichrist. Therefore, what's happening here is that the vision is detaching from the pattern and moving forward to the fulfillment. That's also possible. All right, so just to bring this down to street level, I think you've got three options for how to read the next couple of verses. Number one, you can read it as proof that the book of Daniel was written in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC, and that it represents history as if it were prophecy, meaning it's a deceitful book, right? That pretending to be prophecies in the mouth of Daniel when in fact they're histories in the mouth of somebody in the second century. Okay, that's option one. Option two, you can assume that the vision is still speaking about Antiochus IV Epiphanes, but you must then assume that we have the history wrong here, which can happen, of course. We, we had the history wrong concerning Belshazzar. Sometimes when history and the Bible don't line up, you just need to wait a little while until they dig more history out of the ground. So, so it's just possible here that we don't have all the facts. Number three, you can also assume that the vision here skips forward from the type to the anti-type or from the historical anticipation to the future and ultimate fulfillment. Now, keep in mind that the Bible says that prophets don't always understand what they're seeing, right? 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 makes that point. Daniel is seeing a vision about overlapping realities, cosmic and political struggles that are ultimately inseparable and stretching across the ages. He is then describing to us what he sees. It is entirely possible that, he's, that he is describing a spirit of Antichrist in terms of how it manifests in 2nd century BC and also how it then manifests in some future age ahead. Joyce Baldwin refers to this as prophetic telescoping in her commentary. That is, seeing two historical manifestations of a single spiritual reality simultaneously. And I think that's what's going on here. Now, one way or the other, though, we have to decide how we are reading this text. But we should be gracious with others who are reading it differently, as long as they are treating it authoritatively and not as deceitful 
in any way. Meaning, I think option two and three are legitimate, and I reject option one out of hand. All right, with all that being said, let's read it. Verse 36 says this, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. All right, under the assumption that we are now speaking about the Antichrist, we note this. First of all, he'll be a ruler of incredible arrogance. Secondly, he'll have great authority and power, and he shall magnify himself even above God. He is going to think of himself in explicitly religious categories. Verse 37 says, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. Now, the translation and meaning of the first half of this verse are, are very clear. He's going to disregard all religions, including his own. The second half, though, is debated. Some say it refers to a, a Canaanite goddess, uh, the, the, the worship of Tammuz, the one beloved of women, a god that was particularly uh, beloved of Canaanite women. Or that it means he pays no regard to the love of women, that, that he is a, a eunuch, or that he loves men instead of women. Both translations are possible. Both meanings are possible. Scholars disagree, and I don't feel competent to negotiate their dispute. Verse 37 goes on to say this, He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. So the phrase, God of fortresses there probably means that instead of honoring a traditional religion, he will be a man who worships military power. Verse 39 says, He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, likely this god of fortresses there. Those who acknowledge him, acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. This verse seems to mean that whether he knows it or not, his political career is empowered by demonic forces. And with this help, he rises to power and rewards those who follow him. Verse 40 begins with the phrase, at the time of the end, which again seems to suggest that we have telescoped forward to an end time manifestation of the type and pattern. And thus, we are seeing here a prophecy of what is sometimes called the Battle of Armageddon, the great and climactic battle that brings physical, political, cosmic, and spiritual forces into a time of final conflict and resolution. Verse 40 says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Cushites shall follow in his train. 
But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destructions, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So forces from every direction will gather in the valley of decision. There will be battles and rumors of battles. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, if we are right in aligning this prophecy with the Antichrist and the final conflict, then what we are reading in the Old Testament is just a narrative version of what we read in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, which says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of of his coming. Evil will emerge and be focused and personified in one final arrogant and opposing figure. For a time, he will oppose and oppress the worship of God and the people of God. He will arise, strengthen himself, speak arrogantly, and attract many. But in the end, he will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring his dominion to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That is how the reign of evil ends. That is how the beast is finally slain. Old Testament and New, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.